High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a cry for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final installment in our ongoing series, Bela and Boris. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, I am Dracula. It's alive! Oh, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. I was greater than any real empire. Sure, sure. Awake. Have I been asleep? She hates me, like others. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> the phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. We belong dead. Today, we are going to close out the life and career of Boris Karloff, who outlived Bela Lugosi by 13 years. We've mentioned earlier in this series that although Karloff's career had ups and downs just like Lugosi's had, and sometimes they were the same or very similar ups and downs, Karloff always seemed to come out better in the end. So it went with each actor's late-in-life stint serving as throwback marquee value for young, exploitation movie directors aiming to milk the most out of microscopic budgets. In the 50s, Bela spent his last living years at the beck and call of the enthusiastic, but inept, Ed Wood. In the 60s, 
Boris Karloff accepted a contract from the prolific, frugal, but incredibly influential producer and director, Roger Corman. There were some crucial differences between Corman and Ed Wood. For one thing, while Wood's low-budget movies are generally considered to be, at best, charmingly awful, Corman's movies have been widely embraced by cinephiles and historians, even though his output varies wildly in entertainment value, schlock value, and production value. Karloff himself, as we'll see, was not entirely happy with his experience working with Corman, but he continued to accept work from Corman and other low-budget producers virtually right up to the day he died. With his sometime rival Lugosi having been denied the opportunity to work in mainstream movies in his later years, it was as if Boris Karloff was out to prove that the same thing would never happen to him. Most of the work Karloff made in his last decade, with Corman and otherwise, pales in comparison to his great movies of the 1930s. But a couple of films do stand out, particularly Targets, Peter Bogdanovich's directorial debut, which stars Karloff as an aging horror actor confronting the obsolescence of his identity and his genre in a world in which a new kind of horror is suddenly very real. In his own life and career, Karloff would never succumb to obsolescence, even while continuing to work in a very real and literal sense destroyed him. Join us, won't you, for the final chapter of Bela and Boris. Boris Karloff and Roger Corman. After the nadir of Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff, Karloff and his wife Evie moved to New York, where they bought an apartment on the top floor of the Dakota. There, Boris could pursue opportunities on the stage, on radio, and in the fledgling field of TV. Karloff still occasionally made movies. In fact, he made another Abbott and Costello horror movie, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in 1953. But much of his success over the next few years would not be in Hollywood. He triumphed again on Broadway as Captain Hook, opposite Gene Arthur in Peter Pan. In 1956, he was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Actor for his work in the play The Lark. He guest-starred on all manner of TV variety shows, gamely participating in comic skits and even musical numbers. At Frank Sinatra's request, Boris served as the singer-turned-actor's acting coach on the set of the World War II film Kings Go Forth. Karloff shot three features in 1958, including Frankenstein 1970, and then years went by without a movie offer. By the early 1960s, he was living primarily in England, coming to the States to take the occasional job and to block-shoot introductions to Thriller, the horror anthology TV show which he hosted. But by then, 
The old Universal monster movies were a staple on TV, and a younger generation of directors sought to make use of Karloff the Elder Statesman in their horror movies. Karloff would return to American big screens in The Raven. Not a remake of the film he'd made with Bela, but an Edgar Allan Poe-assisted horror movie spoof, starring a roundelay of spooky movie stars, Vincent Price, Peter Lorre, and Karloff, all brought together by the current leading impresario of horror hits, Roger Corman. A Stanford graduate and Navy veteran, Roger Corman began directing movies in 1954. He claimed that of the 400 features he had a hand in during his first 40 years in the business, only 15 of them were unprofitable. What was his secret? The commonalities to most Corman productions are as follows. No matter the genre or subject matter, he and his employees worked cheap and fast, and he put his trust in young, ambitious people who loved movies allowing them to get their start by learning on the job. His protégés included Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Monty Hellman, Joe Dante, and many more. And Corman believed in listening to what young people wanted. He'd actually send assistants to LA area high schools with clipboards to poll teenagers about their preferences for titles poster designs, and plots of movies. Another factor in Roger Corman's success was the changing landscape of exhibition. Starting with his second feature as a director, the original The Fast and the Furious, in 1954, Corman started distributing his films through American Releasing Corporation, later called American International Pictures. This was the company co-founded by Sam Arkoff, the guy who, around the same time, would buy Ed Wood's The Bride of the Monster. Companies like AIP were able to take advantage of the fact that the studios had been forced to sell off most of their theatrical holdings when the U.S. government attempted to break up their monopolies in the late 1940s. Studios used to make expensive A-movies and less expensive B-movies, so that each movie theater had content for a double bill. But now that the studios no longer had a stake in exhibition, and couldn't force movie theaters to show every movie they made, the studios began to make fewer B-movies and genre movies, and instead poured money into expensive extravaganzas, Super A movies that they hoped would drag audiences away from their TVs. Companies like AIP picked up the slack, grinding out cheaply made genre movies to show at drive ins and at smaller independent theaters that couldn't compete for the big extravaganza films. AIP's movies appealed to teenagers, who for the first time were beginning to be understood as a demographic with its own buying power and interests that often contradicted conventional wisdom. In the late 50s and early 60s, when many adults were content to stay at home at night and watch television, teenagers sought to rebel from their parents and be together. And one place where they could do that was at the movies.
Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Lower-budget films, often independently made and in genres like horror, crime, sci-fi, or action, began to be called exploitation movies because their producers and distributors, without the system of the studios behind them, would have to find new angles to exploit in order to market them. A key promotional angle was real life. This was how Glenn or Glenda got made, because Ed Wood's exploitation-minded distributor believed the Christine Jorgensen story would serve as free publicity for a movie about a cross-dresser. Corman, in particular, liked to make movies that were, quote-unquote, ripped from the headlines. And a true story combined with a genre could be a real cash cow. Carmen would soon find that the only thing better than a truly terrifying movie inspired by real life was a movie that mixed horror with comedy. This was not a natural hybrid for Corman, who was not a particularly funny guy. But one of his writers, Chuck Griffith, was. Griffith wrote a comedic horror script called A Bucket of Blood, about an idiot savant who becomes a sensation in the beatnik artist scene by exhibiting freshly killed corpses as sculpture. Before reading it, Corman told Griffith he wasn't interested. We don't do comedy or drama because you have to be good, Corman said. We don't have the time or money to be good, so we stick to action. But once he read Bucket of Blood, Corman had to admit, The script was good. The only problem was that Corman didn't know how to direct comedy. Griffith suggested he direct all the actors to play the lines completely straight. This would become the hallmark of Corman's subsequent comedic work. Actors not known for being comedians would be cast in comic roles, which they'd play with the utmost seriousness. Corman and Griffith 
followed up a bucket of blood with Little Shop of Horrors, featuring a young Jack Nicholson as a masochist at the dentist's office. You know, most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself, don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such, there's a real feeling of growth, of, of <laughs> progress when that, that old drill goes in. I mean, I'd almost rather go to the dentist than anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> now, no Novocaine, it dulls the senses. <laughs> Corman's Little Shop of Horrors was made for $27,000. It broke even on its first day of release. With the support of AIP, which sensed there was a ceiling on the low-budget productions that could limit their company's growth, Corman next upped the pedigree of his horror output by beginning a series of adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe. The first of these, The House of Usher, starred Vincent Price, who had taken over for Claude Rains as the Invisible Man in that film's sequel, but really became a horror star in 1953 with House of Wax. Price had then become a go-to for 50s horror gimmick director William Castle, starring in The House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. By the early 60s, his presence in the cast of Usher was one indication that Corman and AIP had graduated to another level. The Cinemascope cinematography was another. House of Usher was budgeted at $250,000, almost 10 times what Little Shop had cost to make. And while Little Shop was shot in two days, Usher's shoot stretched to three weeks. The extra time and money spent paid off. Usher was a massive hit, just as Universal had, 30 years earlier, went hard in on monster movies after their first success. Now Corman and AIP went all in on Poe. The Raven was the fifth Corman Poe film, and it represented a departure. The previous films in the series had been basically straight horror. Usher and The Pit and the Pendulum, in particular, were rich with psychological and emotional subtext. But after four previous movies made in the same vein in less than three years, the gambit threatened to go stale, and Corman decided to re-embrace the Little Shop formula. The Raven would function as a parody of its predecessors, as it sort of had to. By this point, the tropes of the series that had once created suspense, from the copious amounts of fog that Corman used to obscure the cheapness of the sets, to the lurid colors he used to enhance moods, had been by now overdone and rendered impotent. Not that Corman and AIP wanted anyone to know going in that they were allowed to laugh at the Raven, afraid that no one would go see a horror comedy, in part because no one had gone to see Bucket of Blood, they marketed The Raven as straight horror, and then delivered an absurd fantasy comedy. Corman planned to signal to the audience that it was okay to laugh once they were already in their seats, with the first scene when Vincent Price's character bumbles around his drawing room and then has a comic exchange with Peter Lorre, who has been transformed by Boris Karloff's wizard 
into a talking raven. Shall I ever hold again that radiant maiden whom the angels call Lenore? How the hell should I know? What am I, a fortune teller? Ooh, I'm chilled to the bones. Why don't you give me some wine? Well, don't just stand there gaping at me. The raven was challenging work for Karloff. Peter Lorre liked to improvise, which was not something Karloff had the training or the inclination for. And Corman had cast Boris, who he thought had given one of cinema's greatest performances in Frankenstein, without realizing exactly how frail he had become. In one scene, Karloff's character was supposed to descend a long staircase. Karloff took a look at the set and then took Corman aside. Roger, I can't walk down that staircase. Corman decided to shoot Karloff at the top of the stairs, taking a step. Then he'd cut away, then cut back to Boris at the bottom of the stairs. In order to get Karloff to the top of the stairs and then to the bottom, two Teamsters had to carry him. Luckily, the rest of the movie wouldn't require Karloff to shoot much action. The climax of The Raven is a magician's duel between Karloff and Price, during which the actors basically remain seated in thrones, and much of what they literally throw at one another is animated on top of the live action. The absurdity mounts until Karloff's fairy tale villain's castle is engulfed in pink flames, rising against a violet, painted backdrop sky. He and his female cohort survive, but she's upset that in the ruckus, her dress has been tattered. He tries to use his once-infallible mental magic powers to fix it, but he only makes it worse. Look at my dress! Oh, can't you do anything right? Well, all right, darling, hold still. I'll attend to that for you. Now, hold still. <gasps> oh, look what you've done. You've destroyed it. I'm afraid I just don't have it anymore. <sighs> the same could be said for the horror genre that Karloff represented. The Raven and Karloff's other comic Corman movies have their proto-psychedelic 60s charms. But from here, American horror movies would have to become more realistic, more recognizably modern, in order to take back their power to disturb. The next dozen years would bring Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and Carrie. And at the beginning of this wave not nearly as successful as those other films, but unquestionably part of the same cultural evolution, there was Targets. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your 
time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. A weekend fell into the Ravens' 15-day shooting schedule. And when Corman's plans to play tennis that Sunday were spoiled by rain, he found himself sitting around the house where they were shooting, admiring the sets, and wishing he could milk more value out of them. That afternoon, he wrote the outline of another film he thought he could make on the same sets. The next day, he showed the outline to his actors and asked if they'd stick around after The Raven was finished to make another picture. Boris agreed to work another two days to shoot his scenes of the second movie, called The Terror, and Corman quickly wrote just the scenes that Karloff's character would feature in. Corman convinced Jack Nicholson, who had a supporting role in The Raven, to play opposite Karloff in these scenes, on the promise that when Corman eventually got around to writing and shooting the rest of the movie, Nicholson would be the star. Corman made good on that promise, even though the direction of the terror passed through the hands of Francis Ford Coppola, Monty Hellman, and Nicholson himself before it was finished. Karloff had agreed to give Corman two more days, but he hadn't realized that his entire part would be finished within the 48 hours, which meant the old man would be required to work non-stop from the moment he arrived on set until they got what they needed in the can. The film's climax required Karloff's character to drown in a flooded house. Karloff got into the water tank to shoot the scene and then got right out. He couldn't and wouldn't do it, and Corman completed the shot with a double. The two Corman films back-to-back had pushed Karloff to his physical limits. He was in his 70s, and his body was frail. He had emphysema and arthritis, and when not on camera, he walked with a hunch or rested in a wheelchair. It was, he said, a public scandal that I'm still around, yet every time I act, I provide employment for a fleet of doubles. And he continued to work, and to provide such employment for doubles, even as his health continued to decline. He even traveled to Italy to work with Mario Bava, the godfather of the lurid Italian giallo films, on Black Sabbath, a triptych. Karloff not only acted in one of the segments, but also served as the host, tying the three parts together. When The Raven proved to be a hit, Corman reassembled Karloff, Laurie, and Price, and added to the ensemble another former Frankenstein, Basil Rathbone, for another horror spoof, Comedy of Terrors. Boris started cranking out appearances in less-than-serious 60s drive-in fare. Movies like Bikini Beach, The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, 
and Mad Monster Party. Karloff had come to terms with the fact that modern movie and television makers wanted to hire him at least as much for his associations to the canon of horror as for his present-day talent. And he seemed happy just to be wanted. Where Bela Lugosi had complained of being typecast as monsters and had felt old age had fatally crippled his ability to play the lovers he associated himself with, Karloff claimed that such things didn't bother him. I know it's fashionable to complain about being typecast, which I think is nonsense. I haven't been hampered at all. I mean, it's a bit like a clown, I think, that is dying to play Hamlet. I'm quite sure the public, the audience, the chap who pays his half-crown or whatever it is, in the final analysis, is the best judge of what you can do and what he likes to see you do. And we are their servants, and should bear that in mind. His desire to keep working, despite his limited mobility, almost seemed compulsive, especially as he started popping up in bizarre places. In October 1965, Boris appeared on the Halloween episode of Shindig, an afternoon dance music TV show for teenagers. Right after an ad for Almond Joy Candy, the camera rolled in on Boris, sitting in a throne in the middle of the darkened stage, where he'd proceed to read from a large book an ostensible nursery rhyme that would turn into instructions for a new, would-be dance craze called the Peppermint Twist. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, now is the time for our nursery rhyme. A long time ago, the world had just begun. Everyone had gone to the sun. And they had a new dance, and it went like this. Papa Papa Dooba. The name of the dance is the Peppermint Twist. Papa Papa Dooba. You like it like this, the Peppermint Twist. Papa Papa Dooba. Round and round. Up and down. Round and round, up and down. Round and round and up and down. And one, two, three, kick. One, two, three, jump, jump. Boris would stay in the chair and continue to chant the steps as the lights came up and he was surrounded by screaming, dancing girls. At the end of the show, he did a bit where he made Ted Cassidy, the actor who played Lurch on the Addams Family TV show, disappear. Uh, one more thing. Sir, I am no apparition. Stand back, stand back. Ghouls, ghosties, goblins, and ghastlies. Shazam! I think that's the way they do it. Well, now, Jimmy. Oh, where did he go for? Well, I'll have to do his job for him. Next time on Shindig, we'll have the Strange Loves, Jackie Wilson, Nancy Sinatra, Tony and the Bandits, Fontella Bass, and Billy Joe Royal. Be sure to watch those And this is Boris Karloff saying goodnight from Halloween Land. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's remarkable the extent to which this 70-something star of the 1930s was able to insinuate himself into so much of the youth culture of the 1960s. And when I say youth culture, I'm not just talking about teenagers watching Shindig or going to see the Corman movies at the drive-in. In 1966, Boris was cast as the narrator and the voice of the Grinch in the animated adaptation of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve, hating the Who's. Staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now, hanging a holly Who wreath. And they're hanging their stockings. He snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. Karloff won a Grammy for this performance. But as he was not entirely sure what a Grammy was... He declined to travel from his retirement cottage in England to Los Angeles to accept it. A few months later, though, he was called back to Los Angeles unexpectedly. Roger Corman was meticulously going through his books, and he realized that he was still owed two days of work by Boris Karloff. Corman had an idea, and he called Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich was writing about film for Esquire magazine when he and his wife, Polly Platt, decided to move from New York to Los Angeles in the hope that he could someday find work actually making movies. Once they had settled into a house in Van Nuys, Peter began socializing with the aging directors whose works he had seen obsessively, guys like Howard Hawks and Fritz Lang. At a screening of a Jacques Demy film, someone introduced Bogdanovich to Corman. Corman was impressed by film scholars like Peter. One assistant recalled that Corman would ask his new hires to read the German philosopher Krakauer's theory of film. The next thing Bogdanovich knew, he was acting as assistant director on Corman's The Wild Angels the psychedelic biker movie that predated Easy Rider and also starred Peter Fonda. On this very low-budget production, Bogdanovich was thrown into the fire, tasked with pitching in on every aspect of making the movie, from the planning to the direction to editing and dubbing. Corman then offered Bogdanovich the chance to graduate to director on his next movie. Corman offered to fully finance Bogdanovich's directorial debut at $125,000, with the caveats that Bogdanovich had to make use of the two days owed to Corman by Boris Karloff. 
Corman figured Bogdanovich could shoot 20 minutes of new Karloff footage in two days, and then combine it with 20 minutes of footage that Karloff had previously shot for The Terror, the movie that Corman had squeezed in on the standing sets of The Raven. That made 40 minutes, and to get the additional 40 minutes required for a feature, Corman would bankroll 10 days of new shooting. Bogdanovich couldn't say no, but he maneuvered to get Karloff for five days, as part of a shoot that stretched to a total of three weeks. It was now Bogdanovich's job to turn all of the restrictions and stipulations that Corman had provided him with into a screenplay. He sat down with his wife and collaborator, Polly Platt, to brainstorm what they could do with Boris Karloff and the old footage from the terror that would still feel modern and appropriate for a drive-in movie theater in the late 1960s. The culture had changed significantly in just the four years since Karloff had shot the terror. That had been pre-JFK assassination, before the Beatles had come to America. By early 1967, when Bogdanovich was preparing to shoot what would become Targets, the Beatles had released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and the anti-Vietnam War movement was picking up steam, and the newspapers had started to pick up on a series of incidents in which disaffected American men killed multiple people, usually strangers, for no immediately evident reason. The first flash of inspiration for Targets came from Bogdanovich imagining a scene between Corman and Karloff right after the pair screened The Terror. The lights would come up, and the actor would tell the producer, Roger, that is one of the worst films I have ever seen. In other words, rather than having to incorporate the old footage of Karloff and the Terror into his new story, Bogdanovich could let the old movie be a mediocre movie within his movie by writing a new part for Karloff in which he played a version of himself, an aging actor. But rather than make a straight Hollywood story, Bogdanovich paired the idea of an old horror icon confronting his own obsolescence with a story of true crime terror. Corman regularly pillaged current events for material, so he approved Bogdanovich's notion of making a film inspired by Charles Whitman, who had gone on a killing spree, much of it conducted with a sniper rifle from his perch on a tower above the University of Texas in Austin. Random mass murder was not yet an everyday occurrence in America in the late 1960s. And this kind of very real world, homegrown terror was something new for people to be afraid of. Corman thought it could be fodder for a Hitchcockian thriller at least to the extent that a Hitchcockian thriller could be made for a very low six-figure budget. If anyone could do it, it would be Peter Bogdanovich, who knew Hitchcock's style like it was lyrics to a song. Bogdanovich wrote a script in which Karloff's character, named Byron Orlock, was not just self-deprecating, but self-flagellating. Karloff, at home in England, read it and liked it, but on the phone with his director, he asked if it could be toned down. Since I'm playing myself, Peter, could I possibly 
not say such terrible things about myself? Bogdanovich promised Karloff that the meaner he was to himself, the more the audience would embrace him. And Boris agreed to say the lines as written. Bogdanovich took note of the fact that unlike the version of himself that had been written for him to play, Karloff was not interested in packing his career in. On the contrary, he was determined to keep going as long as he was able to. That wouldn't be much longer. By the time Karloff showed up on Bogdanovich's set, he was having problems with both legs and generally wore leg braces and used a cane when he was able to walk at all. This, plus his advancing emphysema, made it difficult for him to both talk and move at the same time. Karloff never complained, and Bogdanovich made sure to make his star know that his professionalism was valued. Karloff's wife, Evie, was on set, standing by with Boris's wheelchair for when the star was in between shots. Targets interweaves two seemingly unrelated stories until they converge. A clean-cut, all-American, middle-class, white young man, played by Tim O'Kelly, loads up his white Mustang with guns and ammo, kills his wife and mom, and then sets up shop in an industrial part of the San Fernando Valley and starts shooting strangers as they drive down the freeway. Meanwhile, Byron Orlock views his picture, The Terror, and then announces to its producers and director that he's retiring from motion pictures. This is upsetting to the director, Sammy, a version of Peter Bogdanovich played by Peter Bogdanovich. I know you came out to save your own little opus. Well, that's true, because without you, there's no picture. Rubbish, anybody can walk through the special effects for you. It's not that kind of picture, and there's nobody else for it. The part is you. Sammy, you're a sweet boy, but you can't possibly understand what it feels like to be me. I'm an antique, out of date. All right, what are you going to do? Plant roses? Actors don't retire. About six months and you'll blow your brains out, Bob. I'm an anachronism. What does that mean? Sammy, look around you. The world belongs to the young. Make way for them. Let them have it. Later, Sammy drunkenly shows up at Orlock's hotel room to try to convince him to change his mind about retirement. They watch an old Orlock movie on TV, The Criminal Code, Karloff's own breakthrough picture. We watch, as they watch, that scene I mentioned in a previous episode— where Karloff wordlessly stalks and terrifies a prison inmate. Sammy is transfixed. The men drunkenly bond, and Orlock agrees to do one last personal appearance at a drive-in movie theater the following night, if Sammy helps him. By the time Orlock arrives at the drive-in, the shooter has already set up shop behind the screen, and has begun picking off spectators one by one while they watch Karloff and Jack Nicholson in the terror. Because the audience members who are not shot are sequestered in their cars, with their individual speakers drowning out the sound of the rifle, it takes a while for word to spread that a murder spree is going on. The final act of the movie 
is an incredibly powerful orchestration of ironic imagery, as the Karloff slash Orlock on the movie screen within the movie moves around his cheesy castle in his purple frock coat, a real killer evades detection, and the real Orlock slash Karloff comes to understand what's going on and makes his own moves to stop it. Targets is as of the moment and ripped from the headlines as it could be. There are literal newspaper headlines about senseless shootings seen in the movie, and certain details, like the fact that the killer drags his mother's corpse into bed after he's killed her, are taken directly from the crimes of murderers like the co-ed killer. And yet, Bogdanovich's heart was with the old Hollywood that Karloff was a survivor of. And while making a totally modern movie, he was able to address the supposed obsolescence of such quote-unquote relics, while also making a case for their continued vitality. If a better movie has been made since about the obviously still extremely relevant issue of mass random gun violence, I haven't seen it. Targets was supposed to be released by AIP, with which Corman still had a deal, but Bogdanovich had greater ambitions for the movie, and when early reviews were good, he was able to sell Targets to Paramount. And then Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and Paramount got freaked out about releasing a movie about an assassin. When they finally released the movie in late summer of 1968, with text at the beginning, framing the film as a kind of docudrama about the importance of gun control, the good reviews couldn't get anyone to go see it. Boris shot all of his material for targets in five days in March 1967, and then he went back to England and shot a film called The Crimson Cult, co-starring Christopher Lee. Then Karloff was offered a deal to star in a series of four Mexican horror movies. The trip to Mexico would have been too daunting for him. His emphysema now required the frequent use of an oxygen tank. But the Mexican producer was willing to compromise. So over the course of five weeks in Los Angeles, Boris shot material that would be divided into four Mexican horror films to be released over the next two years. When he returned to England in late 1968, Boris was immediately admitted into the hospital. His emphysema had advanced to the point where only part of one lung was functioning, and he needed to be fed oxygen constantly. He did not get better. Boris Karloff died on February 2nd, 1969, at the age of 81. His entire career was a testament to longevity, from his early fight to establish the Screen Actors Guild, to his ability to find a career beyond Frankenstein's monster, to his refusal to stop working, even as some of his internal organs already had. Literally, up to his last breath, he was fighting against the obsolescence that had swallowed his universal monster movie counterpart, Bela Lugosi. As a result, Boris Karloff left behind a longer filmography, richer with better movies. He led what was probably ultimately a happier life. Although, like Bela, he married and divorced many times, 
and was semi-estranged from his only child, Sarah Jane, who was left behind when Boris left her mother for his final wife, Evie. And yet, there's something sad about the way both men ended their lives and careers. While Bela stagnated, begging Ed Wood to give him one last chance at stardom, Karloff, who didn't need a final shot at glory, couldn't remove himself from the treadmill of work and stardom. In the end, what's most fascinating about Bela and Boris is not what they had in common exactly, but the ways in which they function as opposite sides of the same coin. From Frankenstein on, the theme of Karloff's characters was that outsiders and misfits, ugly and uncouth though they might be, can be more human than supposed members of respectable society. In other words, the monster can be a hero, and what we're initially repelled by can be something that we should embrace. On the flip side, Bela Lugosi, from Dracula until Igor, played men and monsters with a seductive, polished exterior. Doctors, scientists, rich, refined European counts, who used the fact that society was welcoming to them as a cover for their diabolical urges. One star taught empathy for freaks and crooks created by a rotten society. The other embodied the insidiousness of that rottenness. Both of them, together and apart, evoked complicated responses of attraction and repulsion. And what else is stardom about? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Patton Oswalt, who played Boris Karloff, and Ryan Johnson, who played Roger Corman. We will be going on hiatus after this episode, but in the meantime, you can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, the music we use, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back at some point in the future with a new season of You Must Remember This. Until then, good night. Something like a recipe, What a bitch.
stand my intention. 